0: for Normal, Conversations About Change. That means conversations about hope, innovation, transformation, courage, activism, and being on the cutting edge. I'm your host, Sharon Weil, and here I speak with fascinating, pioneering changemakers across many different fields. We talk about how to make change, meet change, and find the courage to create change in your life and in the larger world around you. Bringing new ideas into the mainstream, that's Passing for Normal. Hello and welcome to Passing for Normal. If you want to explore the very nature of change from a body-mind-spirit connection, then you'll be glad you've tuned in for this conversation with my guest today, Dr. Bonnie Gintis. Bonnie Gintis is an osteopathic physician, continuum teacher, and a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. She retired from private practice in 2009 and now devotes herself to teaching, writing, dancing, and exploring new ways to foster health and well-being. Author of Engaging the Movement of Life, Bonnie is a graduate of New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and has taught osteopathic principles and practice and manipulative medicine worldwide. Her innovative approach combines osteopathy, mindfulness, continuum, and other body awareness practices to expand the possibilities of deeply caring for ourselves and others. So welcome, Bonnie. Thank you, Sharon.
1: It's great to be here. About to have
0: a fabulous conversation. I know we're going to have a fabulous conversation. I'm so excited to be talking to you because when it comes to exploring the nature of change and the changes that take place in our body and health or can take place, you are truly pushing the edges of that discovery.
1: I do believe I'm literally living proof that uh, there is tremendous creativity in the process of, Expressing one's health. I um, uh, I live with a very interesting situation. Uh, uh, I, I I call cancer the most difficult relationship I've ever had, mm. and uh, uh, and it's that relationship that has really informed me about how to live my life. Uh, shall I jump into? that and its relationship to my continuum practice, or do you want to ask me some questions about that?
0: I want to... um, First, I want to lay down some uh, groundwork that people can understand. So um, you're bringing together osteopathy and fluid movement inquiry and mindfulness in a field that amplifies one another. And so perhaps briefly... We could begin by you describing the approach of osteopathy in medicine, and then we'll get into what Continuum does, and then all of that will come together in how you are dealing with this most challenging relationship. Great. So the three areas of
1: interest in my life, osteopathy, Continuum, and mindfulness, as far as I'm concerned, are all different expressions of the same thing. In osteopathic practice, I learned how to be with someone else's body and to perceive and respond in a certain way. In Continuum, I learned exactly the same thing in reference to my own body. Mm. And in mindfulness, I, I, um, I learned the foundational practices for cultivating awareness and building a sensory vocabulary to have uh, a practice for sensing inside my own or someone else's body so I feel like they sh- they, sh- they share a lot and um, they all are part of what I consider the natural world there are laws of nature that just manifest in a in an individual person between two people in the relationship we have to the environment and in the whole world we live in and they all express themselves through these two these three approaches that I've uh, i blended in both my personal and
0: professional life. Mm-hmm. And so, also, I know from the work that you do that all of these are also expressions of the movement of fluids. Absolutely. And movement so can- is
1: the basis of 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 every of everything that's alive. So it's uh, it's my deep belief that. Well, everything is movement, and in order for health and well-being to completely express itself, there needs to be freedom of movement. So freedom of movement happens in the mind. It happens in your nasal cavity. It happens in your emotions. It happens in your beliefs. It happens in your body and the ways that you move. It happens everywhere. There needs to be freedom of movement for there to be health and well-being in both the personal and the planetary process.
0: Yeah, you know, because of this, uh, con- because of the continuum uh, movement that you and I share, we're both teachers. You know, in my books cha- about changeability, I talk about change as the movement of change, and that what aligns us with the movement of change or what impedes the movement of change, but that it's all about movement.
1: Right. Yeah, that movement needs to express itself; otherwise, the the uh, the, the 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 rigidity that happens uh, resists um, adapting to the necessity of the moment.
0: Right, so, and uh, how does that show up in the body? It shows up in the well, body. How does it show oh, up ab- in the body?
1: Absolutely, every moment it shows up in the body, and the body's ability to meet whatever it's uh, uh, it's being either challenged or just presented with. So my definition of health is our body's ability to adapt or to creatively compensate for, uh, for, what, um, for, what, for what it's facing.
0: Ooh, I like that, creatively compensate. You know, most people right. don't think of the body as a creative process. That's all the
1: body is. <laughs> the body is a walking, living, breathing, creative process because every moment the body has to figure out what it needs to do next to keep itself alive. And uh, not everything that happens to the body can be fixed or repaired or gotten rid of. So as long as a person is alive, certain things will happen to us that uh, we, we, we can't heal like make new again from So we need to learn how to compensate for them. And you can compensate uh, for an ankle sprain by limping for the rest of your life, or you can compensate for an ankle sprain by addressing the way your, uh, your foot relates to your knee, your hip, your entire body, and really look at the way your whole body walks. And you can more creatively compensate than just limping on something that hurts. So... Uh, and that goes on at every level of the body. In the musculoskeletal system, people don't realize it's happening in organs all the time, and it's happening right down to the level of the cells and the spaces between the cells and the fluids that move through everything in the body.
0: And through our breath, right? I mean, we can, we can compensate and shift our state just from changing the way we breathe. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, That, as far as I'm concerned, is the whole purpose of our breath is to be versatile and, uh, and have a complexity and, uh, and a wide variety of expression. There's a way that you want to breathe when you're uh, in pain that uh, will help you manage the pain. There's a way you want to breathe when you're running to catch a plane. There's a way you want to breathe when you're falling asleep at night. So being able to uh, creatively choose Uh, And some of this is conscious and some of it is not conscious. But the body chooses how it needs to breathe to support what's happening in the moment.
0: Right. So on one hand, you're saying that there are certain things that take place within um, our bodies over time that can't be fixed or repaired or restored, but we compensate for them. On the other hand, we are so mutable. We are so much more adaptable than, than we think. Can you speak to adaptability and mutability? Oh, definitely.
1: The, uh, well, the nature of the body is to be mutable. So the body has an incredible capacity to, uh, to remodel, to grow new tissue where there wasn't tissue before, or to grow a new kind of tissue. Um, and, uh, and this happens uh, on a mundane level in response to the way we use our body, if you sit at a desk all day slumped over a computer, uh, you're not punished by getting a slumpy posture. There are no punishments in nature. Nature is responding to what you're asking your body to do. Hmm. So it will remodel to support you being stuck in a chair leaning over a computer. And if if you want that to be different, then you just ask your body to do something different and it'll begin to remodel to respond to, let's say, lying backwards over a, uh, a giant physio ball. If you want to try to address the balance of, some, of one activity that overuses your body in one direction, ask it to respond in another direction.
0: I love what you're saying, that it's really always, that there's no punishment in nature, that it's always, our bodies are always responding to what is asked of it.
1: That's right. I, mean, I, have, I, I have cancer. I don't feel like I'm being punished for something I did wrong in my life. My body is responding to something it met, whether it's, you know, in the, I mean, I have a strong sense in my case that it came from the environment. I grew up in South Florida where they sprayed for mosquitoes down my street every night. My body's not punishing me. me. My body met that challenge, and it, and it, and it responded to it. Unfortunately for me, in the present, that response looks like cancer. But I've created a relationship with the cancer that lives in my body, and uh, I listen closely. The conversation is not always easy, and I try to respond to what my body is asking for in the moment. And considering that 10 years ago, they didn't expect me to live more than a year, I think I've, uh, I've learned to listen to something important and and respond.
0: Oh, thank goodness that you have. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Can you uh, just specifically speak about your cancer diagnosis so that those listening understand a little more specifically what you're talking about or what you're dealing with?
1: So in 2009 I was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. So what that means is I had breast cancer that had already spread to my bones. Uh, A few months earlier I had a normal mammogram, I had nine breast tumors that didn't show up on a mammogram, so I had no way of knowing that I had it mm.
0: uh,
1: until it started to grow in my bones and it was painful. I ended up having a biopsy, and the biopsy showed that I had uh, cancer growing in my bones. I had cancer in 11 different places in bones in my body. Mm. But from the moment it was diagnosed, it has stopped growing and it has, uh, some of it's shrunk, none of it's gone away. But uh, it's, it's all quite quiet. It just sits there, and I converse with it on a daily basis. <laughs> um, and it's my practice of continuum and m- several forms of mindfulness-based meditation that I do that have allowed me to have this conversation, to be present without being in terror, and to be able to really accept what's going on so that I could make the best choice of what I need in the moment to care for myself. Without, without these practices, I could not have managed this ordeal.
0: Yeah. And how does that conversation go? How do you, what, are you, what are you actually doing in this conversation?
1: Well, the conversation's not necessarily verbal.
0: Mm-hmm. The conversation
1: is the way I listen. Uh, so I have some variety of practices. Some of them are movement, and some of them involve sitting or lying still. But going deeply into the felt sense of what's happening in my body and, um, and the fact that it's not a verbal conversation I think allows me to have felt senses arise and offer me insights that are beyond my thinking capabilities. So if I sat down and wrote a list of questions to ask my body, uh, I could not come up with the question. But if I sit and listen... I'll 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 feel the I'll feel the question, and I'll respond, and that may be conscious and it may not be. I might, you know, get up from my morning practices and, you know, eat a bowl of kale, and that that was a message I got that day. Mm-hmm. I might, you know, pick up pick up the phone and call uh, a relative and set a boundary. That might be what I received that day in this nonverbal conversation. But it all comes through a felt sense in my body. And I feel like the, 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 the primary language of the body is a silent felt sense. And when we learn how to change our tempo so that we can hear that and feel that, then we just start living our lives from a different place. And it's a place that's informed by the deep wisdom that's carried in within us.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And so in this felt sense, do you actually feel the presence of the cancer? Do you feel it? Um do you feel how it's affecting your tissue is the feeling at that level? Well,
1: I certainly did for years. Uh it's less of a up front and center sensation now. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there are places in my body where I can focus my attention, and it's clearly just sitting there, mm-hmm. um, uh, doing what it does quietly. And, uh, and I've learned how to choose how and where to pay attention. So if I'm doing some kind of movement where I'm leaning on, on my right arm that connects to the ribs that were affected by cancer, I will very specifically listen because I don't want to lean too hard and hurt myself.
0: Mm-hmm. But and so the feedback do, that you get back when you're leaning is pain, is stress, is you get a... a well, it, right, it could
1: be pain. It could just be a sense that, oh, I'm wobbly there. I don't, mm-hmm. have a, I, don't, I don't have the ability to support myself in that spot. So I sense that there's a lack of integrity in... The bone or the ligament that connects my rib to my sternum, and I shouldn't lean on it too hard.
0: So it's not always just about pain, right? And Sometimes you're someone about who's you're someone who studied. You know what a ligament is and what a bone is. You've studied all of this. You've worked so much with other people, and so um, is this kind of information feedback. Um, accessible for other people who haven't done this kind of deep study of their bodies. It's accessible to anyone who has a body. You, you don't need to <laughs> yeah, know the names of yeah.
1: Anybody, yeah. you don't need to know the names of body parts or where they are or what they attach to feel them and be informed by them. Mm-hmm. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, yeah. So, although I may be able to put it into words because I have because I have a medical education, I don't think it's required to develop the sensory vocabulary to be informed by what's happening at a deeper level in our bodies. Any, any, anyone with a body who's, who's willing can, can develop this.
0: Well, I think that's really important to hear, for people to hear, because I think that, um, especially when some, you know we're so visually oriented and when something can't be seen, um, people can be very intimidated or very discouraged because they go, oh, I don't, even know. I don't even know what to feel. I don't even know how I feel. I don't even know what I'm feeling. There's, um, so I frequently talk
1: about the importance of developing a sensory vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And at the basis of that, I'm talking about the silent felt language of the body where there are no words. But if you practice developing a subtlety of describing what you're feeling, and you do put words to it, you suddenly realize, oh, when I say I'm in pain, I mean 26,347 things. And you, know, and, and you don't always notice that unless you try to mark them with words. And the other reason it's important to develop the, the actual words in the sensory vocabulary, that vocabulary are for when you get to the point where you don't know what to do, then you go to somebody else, and you can ask them because you can really describe exactly where and what you're feeling, and they might understand that as a, as a practitioner who understands the body. So, um, so, I think it's, so I think it's a really helpful practice to try to put it into words. The problem that we all have is that we try to feel and think at the same time, and they don't always work well simultaneously. <laughs> so, um, uh, I mean, I'm quite an overactive thinker, and I have really learned to manage my thoughts or at least just notice, oh, there, are, that's me thinking, <laughs> and, uh, and to try to drop down into, into a more uh, sensory level of, uh, of experiencing my body. And it's a lot easier doing that in movement than when sitting still. So I feel like continuum practice is often a really accessible bridge for people who are trying to connect a meditation practice with, with, a, with a movement practice.
0: Absolutely. You know, I want to just get back to the, um, the descriptive, uh, the, the, the vocabulary that, you know, a word like pain You know, we we say the word pain and then we assume that everyone assumes what we mean by that Um, or that every time pain is experienced in the same way. But when you break down the language to be tingling or heat or prickles or stabbing or, you know, whatever, whatever descriptive words you can bring in, then you start to understand and sometimes you can even understand that with the words that you, what you're describing isn't actually what you might call pain. It's not actually hurting me. It's a sense, it's annoying. It's, um, it's calling my attention, but maybe it's something else. And so when we use descriptive language, we actually can find out even more about what it is.
1: Uh, absolutely. Uh, pain is, a. Uh... Pain is an interpretation of a lot of different things that a person can feel. Pain is not an actual entity. Uh, What it is that people end up calling pain is a wide wide variety of senses. And those senses might just be telling somebody, change your shoes (laughs) or (laughs) get get up and walk around. And uh, and a lot of people just stop at the surface value of, of of this thing they just label as
0: pain. And they just don't listen to the message underneath it. Oh, I love so, that. I love that because again, it's like it's what you said earlier about, you know, what we're asking our bodies to do or what our bodies are being asked to do and accommodate tight shoes. This is this is the body's response to tight shoes. Get them off. Right. In fact, if 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 a
1: person puts on a pair of 4-inch heels and they and they don't have a litany of sensations they can describe. There's something wrong with them. It means, they've, it means they've shut down and that they've valued their appearance more than the function of their body. So the, the body gives, a lot, gives us a lot of information that uh,
0: sometimes we have to relearn how to listen to. Oh, that's so true. Because, you know, so I talk to a lot of people about change and about how to have more ability with making change. And it, it so speaks first to the value, right? It's like, what are you going to listen to more? Are you going to listen to the messages of your body? Are you going to listen to the messages of the culture that say, I'm sexy if I'm wearing four-inch heels and I'm nothing if I'm not? Or, you know, and people often don't want to do the trade-off of listening to their body first. Right. And ultimately,
1: I don't feel like it's about having judgment about the choice someone makes. It's about the choice. Yes. A lot of people just don't consciously make the choice. I might choose to, uh, I want to feel festive, and I feel a certain kind of festivity when I get dressed up and I put on these shoes, but I want to consciously choose that. And when I consciously choose that, I'll also probably consciously choose to bring an extra pair in my bag and change at some point in the evening. Yes. You know, So if we just make these choices con- consciously, then, then uh, the body doesn't have to work so hard to recover from the choices that weren't so informed.
0: Right, or to, you know, perhaps reframe our choices and yeah. find that, you know, if, if you know, because I found this at some point in my life that wearing high heels just, tilted my pelvis in such a way that it just never worked no matter how cute i thought those shoes were inevitably that day the next day i would feel it in my back and so you know can i refrain looking cute to include other styles of shoes you know it's like where is the where's the value going to be like you know um can i value the messages of from my body above the other messages
1: right yeah so that's a somewhat mundane example but I think we get to we get to practice on the uh, on the smaller mundane things and then when there's a larger issue in our life then we've had some
0: practice on the easier stuff exactly exactly I love mundane examples for that very reason and people can actually laugh about them people can have humor they don't they're not so charged that you can't actually see the dynamics of what's going on and, like you say, apply it later. So in terms of applying change and adaptability, you know, people are always asking me, okay, so how, you know, how do I dissolve my resistance? How do I let go? How do I actually make change when I feel so set in my way or stubborn and I'm sure that your approach is a somatic one is a is a body-based one i mean what do what do you tell people or how do you work with with your own resistance or the need to soften that resistance well i think for most
1: people it's to acknowledge that a lot of resistance comes from our survival mechanism gone awry <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so many of the things we cling to in terms of whether it's a, a habit or something familiar that may, may not be the best way to proceed, we just we do so out of fear, and I think the first thing we do is just recognize that that's so, so I constantly thank my survival, survival mechanism for doing such a good job that I'm here to speak about it today, And then I, I, and then I question what my resistance is about, so just simply shining a light on the shadow takes some of the charge out of it. So I think that's the first step is just acknowledging it. And then in terms of working through the body to work, uh, work with resistance, you know, such simple things we do in continuum practice like changing our relationship to gravity. Uh, so there are a lot of things that people are used to doing, standing up or sitting sitting in a chair or on the floor. And if you do that exact same movement, lying on your side or hanging off the side of a chair, supporting yourself with one arm on the ground and your legs up in the air, you have created quite an unexpected relationship to gravity. So since you know you're not falling, you've just put yourself in a precarious tilt, you can work with what comes up in the body and you can feel into the ground and ask yourself, where, where can I support myself yeah. to feel safe at this unexpected angle? And, 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 and it's been my experience that working with something as simple as turning myself on, the, on my side or, or, or going upside down, I can actually practice getting triggered by my survival mechanism and then... Practice asking myself, what do I need to support myself in this situation? And either I get a pillow, or I don't tilt myself quite as far, or I decide this is a bad idea, it's not safe, and I get up and I do something else. Because that happens every day in life. But, you know, on a rainy day, you can be in a hurry and you can just run down a flight of stairs and slip and fall. And if you had moved a little bit more slowly and Felt yourself starting to slip, and you go, "Oh, I'm about to have a relationship with gravity that I don't want to have." Uh, you might be able to do something to support yourself through that and not be so injured by the fall.
0: I'll give you an example. I, for whatever reason, I fell twice in one week about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and one was a careless, like I'm running out of the shower to like the conditioner is in another bathroom. And I, you know, slipped on my heel on a tile floor. And as I was, as, you know, sometimes there's this, like, slow motion thing that happens as you're about to fall. And as I was about to fall, I, I turned myself in such a way and kind of pushed myself against the cabinetry so that I wouldn't fall in a worse way. Right. That's a great example. And... You know, of course, I was moving too quickly in the first place. If I had not been moving so quickly and been more careful about what I was doing, I wouldn't have fallen fallen at all. But the idea that, yeah, you know, if we practice falling in one way or another, you know, if we practice being in different, having different perspectives, literally different perspectives by changing our relationships and gravity, like you're talking about, you know if we practice now when it really becomes important it's there it's there in our system absolutely and I've known
1: you for long enough and seen you in all kinds of relationships to gravity I know that you've done your
0: practice <laughs> <laughs> So, yes uh, yeah yeah it's very yeah. important Ev-
1: you- everyone I know uh, everyone I know ha- that has had a serious fall in the past couple of years that's, uh, that's a continuum practitioner has said the exact same thing. I, I fell last summer. I was hiking in the mountains in northern Quebec, and it was raining and it was very muddy. And uh, I pushed off and slipped in the mud, and I was airborne. And I just remember you know, that, that feeling of, uh, of being in the air and having no idea how I was going to land but knowing that I would be better supported if I landed in a certain way with my arm tucked in instead of stretched outward, and, uh, and I hit the ground and I rolled. Mm. I call it the ultimate bone density test. <laughs> I, 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 I did tells a lot more than, a, than, a, than an X-ray or a DEXA scan. I, uh, I, I fell and I didn't break anything. So
0: yes. And when I and yeah. as I was slipping, you know, as I was slipping, I was telling myself, "I am resilient. I am resilient. This doesn't have to be a thing." Right. And um, yes, yeah, so you're
1: you're already dealing with the emotional shock before it sets in, so it doesn't, it it can't root itself. And, uh, and as well and as speaking to system. the
0: possibility that it can be okay. Someone can fall and they can be okay. It doesn't have to be a disaster where our fears take us, right? Right. Because in that same moment, of course, as I was falling, the first thing that was coming up was my fear. And then I was speaking, I found myself speaking to that fear and speaking about, other possibilities, which is what this whole conversation is about. It's like opening to possibilities within the body of what actually, what else can happen besides the scenarios that we tell ourselves. But the, the crucial in piece of information that comes
1: from that fear happens in a, in, a, in a fraction of a second. Yeah. And what we end up calling the conversation about fear it's all the mental chatter that follows the fraction of a second moment where we've gotten the information that we need. So if we can bypass the mental chatter part and uh, and just be informed, because fear is really important,
0: very important. Uh,
1: yeah, then uh, then then we respond the best that we can in the moment, and there we are. We've uh, we've uh, adapted or creatively compensated for being uh, in an unfortunate relationship to gravity. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and and landing <laughs> and landing and landing you want a soft landing yeah so um so so much of our conversation um is around listening and around yes. you know it's around listening and um what is the relationship i mean you've spoken to this but but i'm asking again maybe in a different way What is the relationship of healing and listening, or healer and listener, because you've been in that position for so long? Okay.
1: Well, let's start with healing and listening.
0: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: there's a certain amount of healing that happens in the body without us
0: consciously doing anything. Absolutely. thank goodness thank goodness is right
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah in fact mo- mo- most of it does mm-hmm. and I think what 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 the li- what the listening does is it allows us to optimize the conditions for healing to happen
0: mm-hmm
1: you know healing just unfolds it's it's the response of natural law it's just it's just the unfolding of uh, of the physiologic process of the tissues according to the way nature guides them. So it's not like we have to do something to make that happen. So usually the thing that's most needed is that the conditions need to be optimized. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we need to get that felt sense that we're tired and then actually hear it and go lie down and rest. Or we need to sense that we're thirsty, and we need to drink some water. I mean, it's, often it's as simple as that. Uh, I, there are more esoteric things, and there are complicated decisions that we have to make. That there's, just, there's no way to make a flow chart and ask the right questions, but if you stay in a state of listening, you'll just have an intuitive sense of what the right thing is to do, and you'll have a better chance of having that be the best thing to do.
0: Right, including seeking the help of others, seeking medicine, right. seeking nutrition, yes. right? It's not just about one's intuition can lead them to get other kinds of assistance. Right, but when, you re- when, you, uh, when you've reached
1: a dead end with helping yourself, uh, so if you have this, this vocabulary that you can use to communicate with uh, uh, another person, then you have a better chance of being specific about asking for what you need, and they have a better chance of understanding you. Now, what's really great is when the practitioner, the healthcare practitioner that you're going to, has a practice of their own. So now you're going to somebody who understands and respects the wisdom of the body and uh, uh, starting w- starting with their own. So their ability to listen to you is improved. Their ability to have empathy or compassion is, is, is increased. The, um, uh, the value of a healthcare practitioner having a, a practice, what I, uh, I call an interoceptive practice, a practice where they sense what's going on in their own body, is that um, by sensing what's happening in your own body, you become an observer of yourself, and that actually translates to being an observer of others. And in the neuroscience world, they've done experiments where they can actually uh, test and measure this. So, um, uh, so the ability of, of, of a healthcare practitioner to choose where they put their attention mm-hmm. with their patient, or to choose where or how to set a boundary with their patient, or, uh, or to know when they've reached the limit of their knowledge and they need to ask for help, Mm-hmm. All of that, all, all of that improves when everybody's paying attention to their own bodies.
0: That's really, that's really true. That's really true. Mm-hmm. So, Which is body, why I op- yeah. yeah, go on. Oh, just one
1: more thing. I just want to take it the next step. I always say that doing these practices and caring for yourself in this way is not self-indulgent. It is a radical political act. Because if everybody in the world took the time to pay attention to their embodied experience and their responses came from that place, the
0: world would be a completely different place. And that is a perfect place for us to um, put a pause in our conversation because I could be talking to you endlessly, and I hope that I will. So, Bonnie, before we finish, could you please Mm -hmm. tell our listeners how they can um, be in contact with you, how they can find more about you, how they can find your book? Yes. So the
1: best place to get information about me is on my website, bonniegintis.com. That's B-O-N-N-I-E-G-I-N-T-I-S.com. From there, you can get information about my book, Engaging the Movement of Life. There are other things to read there that I've written. There's a link to my blog. There's a link to my teaching schedule. I, uh, uh, right now, the main thing on my schedule is not happening uh, for for another year. I'll be at Kropalo in Western Massachusetts in May of 2020. I'll be at Omega this summer teaching with a group of Continuum teachers. Uh, but you can get a link to all of that from my website or through the Continuum Teachers Associations website, which is continuumteachers.com, you can link to me. Uh, you can link to some blog entries I've written there that are not on my other website and have uh, a lot of access to information about Continuum practice.
0: Yes, and I just want to mention that you are really a brilliant writer. Your oh, thank ability you. to articulate. Um, and substantiate what you're talking about is really uh, keen.
1: Well, it's been part of my spiritual practice to put into words what my silent felt sense has taught me. So thank you for noticing.
0: Uh, Yes, I do notice. (laughs) So, Bonnie, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Oh, you're so welcome, Sharon. Asking for Normal, Conversations About Change. If you like our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. It helps our audience to grow. To find out more about author Sharon Weil, go to SharonWileAuthor.com. You can also find out more about the Changeability books and about all the guests featured in this podcast at that website. Large or small, go out today and make a brave change. Dare to bring new ideas forward. Our world needs you right now.